it is important to remember that we cannot become what we need to be by remaining what we are. My name is Michael Lee, or Michael Ho-Sung Lee. Um, I run a private equity shop in Korea, and uh, we've been five years in the making. Um, we manage, uh, you know, the, in the global scale, it's considered still a small private equity firm, but we do the full span of uh, finance in the private uh, deal space. We do venture capital investing, so startup uh, investing. We also do growth capital investing, uh, preferably into companies that we know well uh, after monitoring through the venture capital space. Uh, and then uh, we also do mature business buyouts. Um, we sometimes use leverage, uh, sometimes we don't, uh, depending on the domicile and the specific uh, rules of law uh, and uh, things like that. So, But uh, so far, we've acquired a couple of businesses in Vietnam, sitting in Korea. Um, and we made, I don't know, tens and hundreds of millions worth of growth capital investments. And then wow. uh, we're currently running Korean government money included uh, about, I think we're on to fund number five. Awesome. Okay, so for the audience today, Michael is going to do a brief introduction of what for him is the timeless factors of a startup evaluation and investment. He's one of the most knowledgeable person I've ever known, not only regarding to investment and a startup, but also like life philosophy. So I think you're really, really going to enjoy this episode because we enjoyed it a lot. So maybe we can start uh, with the most important question and the question that is always repeated, but that you gave a really special and different answer than any other person I've ever heard, is that what are the key aptitudes or qualities that a founder should possess to building a startup? The founders have to have a cold logic towards, wait a minute, this help, this advice, this offer, this quick deal, you know, these things that, that I'm externally getting, are they really the best choices I got? Because a lot of times people just take whatever is first on the plate. So uh, cold logic is the first one in that arena. Um, mm -hmm. Second of all, this is more practical, like morphability or flexibility. And it's actually in contrast to what I'm going to say next, because um, a founder has to play many roles. He has to be able to not only be a, I'm not talking about being a leader and like being a, being like an operational chief and then sometimes like a sales guy. But what I'm talking about is more functionally, he has to be able to work with each department or each functions of his company early on. Um, so he has to morph. He has to do his best, leave no regret to, to serve a lot of functions to make sure that the company runs because it all falls onto his shoulders. Now, but the next point I'm about to say, I always want to say is that know that you cannot do it alone, which goes into stressing how teams are important, how roles and responsibilities, the R&Rs have to be delegated wisely and whatnot. But the, 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 guy, the founder has to be ready to jump in and play with each respective function uh, as required. He can't say, "Oh, I, I, I have, you know, I have a, I have this great sales guy that's uh, that's in charge of uh, our sales, and I completely trust him." And then kind of turn around, 
You cannot do that. So, um, and it's harder than you know, harder than you think to, to, to be able to morph yourself into different um, needs uh, on different times and then also be able to have uh, a trusted team built out intentional. So those may sound a little bit uh, conflicting, but they are what's, uh, in my book, they are what's important and uh, 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 a condition that must be present. Um, then I talk about two tendencies. I already leaked one out. One is that uh, I'd love to see a founder that uh, is has a tendency to not leave any regret, um, meaning that you give it all. You give it all. If you find a small decision to not work off assumptions, to, to not cut corners, to not you know, don't think that things happen easily. So you have to give it your your best so that you leave no regret. And then the second tendency is to uh, not do anything that uh, may require ex- extensive explanations. The real world really won't give us a chance to explain mm-hmm. um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, fiascos and a lot of. Uh, corporate world news that surprise us all happen. And, you know, we, we sometimes find ourselves looking at the newspapers going, no way this guy did that, you know, you know, how can Elon Musk, you know, set a house on fire, you know, those kind of things. There will be an explanation to it. It's just that the world won't give you a chance to explain. So on the flip side, my advice is that I respect people who tend to make decisions that require the least amount of explanation, meaning that they 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 stick to a certain boundary of behavior in, mm-hmm. in decisions. Um, this is not to say that you know they should limit their innovation or anything, but this is more in the in the works of uh, how they run a company. You know, if you find somebody very very unethical. Um, that was trusted on your team and you find that out. And uh, a good example is that guy's obviously from early stage in, in, a, in, in a startup, he could be playing a very, very crucial role. Uh, you can't keep him. You have to explain a mile to every shareholder uh, yeah. to keep him. So therefore, uh, the correct decision, even though it's a hard decision, is to let him go. Cannot, mm-hmm. You cannot have an unethical person on your team. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd write a book and trying to explain and justify that guy's existence. And he's swearing that he'll never do it again. But the, the correct decision is not to pro- let it proliferate within the firm, within the young company. So mm-hmm. but that's just a quick example. So tendency-wise, there's two. No regrets and no explanations or at least of explanations. Uh, uh, are the other tendencies that I would like to see? And regarding also about the not leaving any regret, um, something that I heard a lot is how important is the decision making of a founder. And I'm always thinking, should a founder be really fast making decisions and just following his uh, instinct, or should he think a lot of the things that he's gonna do really meticulous? Like, how do you approach decision making? Well. Um... I've had numerous conversations about this. Uh, the speed of decision should be that 
sometimes a decision requires a broad view, like everything mm-hmm. that you need to know to make a decision to your mind at the time. If you have sufficient amount of that data, then you can go ahead and uh, make a quick decision. But what, what we quote unquote include into the decision process also includes a part where you collect the base data or the, or the analysis required to make that decision. Now that has to be done deliberately. Mm-hmm. It could take, I would side with the fact that, you know, if you don't have enough, enough data, uh, then you're not ready to make a decision. The world doesn't work that way, of course. If you have one day to respond to a, a pretty big marquee deal, but it doesn't look like it's making you enough money, then you have to say, you know, analyze the effects of having done that deal, right? You know, whether it becomes like a PR piece or like if, if it's going to bring your firm to another level or whatever. Now, you have to be very careful engaging those things. And I'll almost say miss, miss the deal. If you don't have enough conviction or if you don't have enough calculations to think and, uh, and uh, prepare in time, and then, you know, if you just can't make the decision within time, then just miss it. Because uh, I think a quick decision also means that you have enough to decide on. And those are quite simple things. And including invest, like the view from the investor, like from my space, there were numerous times where we couldn't build enough confidence to say yes or no. That turned out to be telling the the the, the, the startup, but practically other investors are already committed. We missed the deadline. We missed the timeline. So they just excluded us from the investors. And uh, that's no regret for us. We are mm-hmm. not ready when we're not ready to make a decision. I think this is really useful for me because I'm a person who struggles a lot making decisions. So thank you for your advice. Mm. Regarding, usually, yeah, usually yeah. everything viewed in a positive way. We, I mean, we're always looking for a, a forty-five degree upwards, a kind of an angle, right, on everything we do. Uh, otherwise, startup industry won't exist. Otherwise, you would be sitting here. Um, trying to add value to your audience. You know, we usually are are very uh, optimistically geared and that's how the world could advance. But the thing is, in every step of the way, you don't want to be the one, one paying the price of being mm-hmm. a bad example to the rest of the humankind. And that's, and uh, you just can't be too careful. So, so uh, yeah, the, make a decision fast if you got enough things to run on, including your gut. But mm-hmm. usually, even trusting your gut takes a lot of uh, a lot of uh, knowledge or, or data or analysis beforehand. Yeah. So, yep, that's it. Okay, um, talking about ambition for you, how is it? How important is it? For a founder to be really ambitious and how do you identify that that person is really ambitious well as i said yeah we, we all live in a uh, uh optimism biased world especially in this arena and uh ambition when when expressed the right way sounds like it should affect and it should be very very uh contagious 
it should feed off on others and then it should impress people. But I have a, perhaps from experience, I have a pretty particular way of looking at it. Uh, ambition has to be uh, addressable in, in, a, in a somewhat quantifiable way. Like to me, if somebody shows a, uh, ambition, it's to me, it translates as a addressable market and speed of growth. That's it. Mm-hmm. There's no other. There's two axes. And uh, if you have a small market and your speed of growth is high, it could constitute as an investment worthy uh, company. But again, you're, 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 you're fighting, you're fighting the war with, you know, with the arm tied back if you have, if you're trying to address a small market. Um, and vice versa, if you have a huge market to address and then your growth rate is so slow, then you're obviously not in the right arena. So uh, ambition should be understood in clear clear axes, uh, addressable market size and speed of growth. And both have to be practically, both have to be very uh, logically and conservatively within reach. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. So, so the dose of conservatism comes in where you don't want to make your market sound like you're the only player in this huge market, blah, blah, blah. That's pretty self-explanatory. Speed of growth actually is another one that's very elusive. Mm-hmm. You think you can do X amount of work with X amount of hours with X amount of employees, but growth also brings in so much new variables. And we'll get there later on. We'll talk about it. But um, like a company that's making 5 million revenue versus 50 million revenue, uh, it's never the state or the shape or the manner that the company imagined when they were doing 5 million revenue. Definitely not. When you hit 50 million revenue, the, the state of is, is completely different. The shape and form of the company is completely different from your five million revenue days. Mm-hmm. So uh, you also want to be always conservative um, as you grow, and ambition has to be has to take into consideration conservatism because you cannot assume the same playing field or the same understanding of, of your business as today when you grow rapidly. Mm-hmm. It's going to throw you a whole new set of variables to deal with. So, uh, dose of conservatism is always needed. Um, that includes, like you know, uh, count your money when it's, when it's in the bank. You know, don't think that you signed the contract so everything's going to happen. So my when I say always apply a dose of conservatism, it doesn't just go to this philosophical way that you have to grow with the company and then and uh, deal with uh, your ambition that way. It's also like count your beans when it's in the bag. Mm-hmm. Lastly, as strategy, as they, some people often ask, uh, I recently had a chat. Um, so somebody's saying, is strategy more important or execution more important? I'm like, well, maybe we're like uh, overanalyzing what strategy is because strategy, let's say, is pointing in a direction, but strategy is also keeping track and making sure that that direction is executed on. So I told the person who's asking, 
which one is more important? I said, you're talking about the same thing. It's actually the same thing. So mm-hmm. in terms of ambition, it has to be backed by meticulousness. And meticulousness means that your ambition, if they say, if I say that we're dreaming about this, this, you know, practically achievable brighter future, then you have to have the execution capability backing up your ambition. And it usually is presented to an investor or, or somebody at the same point, right? You cannot come in, seven lighter, you, can, you cannot come in to me with a business plan and say, you know, this is our dream. And if I ask you how you're going to get there, then, you know, you can't say we'll figure it out along the way. You will have had to have how we're going to get there. So it actually shows at the same time. You cannot mask or you cannot play it by ear. You have to have. You will have had to have a deliberate plan. So, this shows it's it's. You, we can feel it. What you categorize as ambition, we can feel it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, something that I heard a lot of times there's like a struggle for founders. Is that sometimes they don't know how to find the balance between being ambitious and also being conservative because. If they are too conservative, they might seem that they are not ambitious. But if they are too ambitious, they might seem delusional. What would you tell them? What would be your yeah, advice? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. And we're talking about um, different scales of things. So if somebody is um, ambitious, uh, what I mean by having a dose of con- conservatism thrown in there is that when they estimate their addressable market, right? They're working off of assumptions. Be mm-hmm. a little bit conservative there. You know what I mean? Like, and then the speed of growth, let's say, you know, with your laid out cash flow um, that you've been able to follow along for the past three months and it's going in the right direction, um, then one can say that, uh, you know, what we have achieved is continuing. but. As you know, um, as the business grows, because of all the unexpected uh, uh, complications that may come along, then it may not be able to sustain such a growth rate after in just two months. So so place put a little bit of conservatism pointing toward your very ambitious goal is what I would say. How relevant is the background and the experience record of a founder? Uh, for you to make an investment decision, especially when they are first-time founders? Yeah, um, that's also a very good question. And that that kind of brings me to the subject of how I uh, logically, logically regard serial entrepreneurs. Um, so before I get to the first-time entrepreneurs and how ambitious they are and you know, what they have to come with. Then let's look at serial entrepreneurs. That's a tag that's given to people who have either exited nicely mm-hmm. or usually have stomach a failure. To me, um, if somebody is coming in labeled with their past experience as a serial entrepreneur, it definitely does not I guess this could be against the grain because uh, many people, I think, in the industry are preferably, I, they, they prefer serial entrepreneurs. 
you know, but uh, to me, I'm, I'm a little bit different in that if you had exited a business before, then there could be a thousand reasons. But then the fact is that you have built something and left it for money. I don't necessarily know if that increases your chance for the venture that you're presenting to me now after having had that experience. And for the same kind of a logic, I don't know if if you've failed something before coming to me with a new plan. I don't know if that necessarily helps out that you're not going to fail this time or go on a, go on this different path to success. So in short, and I don't want to say that I don't respect serial entrepreneurs, but I just want to say very factually, having been a serial entrepreneur does not give me a swing factor mm-hmm. to favor them. Now, um, on the first time uh, entrepreneurs, I'll look at the team. And if the team is, you know, bring with, brimming with hope and like, you know, dreams about the future and they're not sleeping for eight days, you know, drinking Red Bull and just going full force, knowing that they have a brighter future, but there is a prerequisite to it. At least some key members have to be, have to have had a speciality that links uh, their new business venture uh, and their past experience. Like say, you know, Steve Jobs didn't know how to code, but he had Wozniak, right? Mm -hmm. And there are, for crying out loud, they're coming out with a new operating system and a new computer. Right? So um, similar to that, like if there's like six chefs all coming together and saying that they're going to be the next construction company gurus, I'd be like, which one of you knows how to mix concrete? If they're, all they know is how to mix dough to make pizza, I'd be like, there's the door. <laughs> Go make you know what I'm back. saying? I mean, I, so, you know, if you want, if you, if you, I mean, the simplest ideas could be still sitting out there and nobody, nobody executed on it. And I'm a firm believer that anybody has rights to any kind of idea as long as they can execute, but you want to have some relevance uh, in your team. You don't have to be an expert, but you necessarily have to know and be able to, you know, follow the steps towards uh, your dream. You can't just like us three cannot come together and build that. Look, I'll forward money and three of us makes a makes a company. It's going to be a biotech company. I'd be like, and we go talk to an investor and be like, uh, which one of you knows how to draw a cell? <laughs> and none of us would have any idea so so yeah unless it's like a very foolish hope uh i do respect and uh i do believe that with some some sort of a prior knowledge and uh and uh, basis uh, and observation and deep thought that that definitely qualifies any first-time entrepreneurs that gives mm-hmm. them all the right to be ambitious. It's just that they need to execute on it and they need to, uh, they need to calculate things with a certain dose of conservatism. And apart from being a first-time founder, what about the age? Is it important for you? 
this day and age, and I'm very sad that I'm on the other side uh, saying this. Um, can you believe that I sometimes have ideas for business? Well, I, <laughs> I deem that I'm too old to execute on. Yes, these days, the amount of digital savvy that can add to your efficiency of, uh, of running a business, uh, you tend to lag behind in that arena and others. Obviously, brain power and everything. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's more the case these days than before. Like in the 1950s, leading up to like 1980s, and perhaps even just before year 2000, age could have meant very little in terms of, uh, of uh, entrepreneurship. But these days, you know, you know, I take classes still in like blockchain or whatever from the best institutions of the world, MIT per se. But can I go out there and uh, and uh, and even think about an idea to execute on? No. So yes, I will think that age does play mm -hmm. a big role in that. But it also works uh, works the other way. If somebody's nineteen. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that they should be, I don't think they can bear the proper burden of building an enterprise, addressing a market and not failing in driving the whole boat where they may be entitled to 100 employees, 200 employees uh, and their families. They, they will end up paying the price with the guy because he's inexperienced. Yeah. So too young or too old, definitely not. And my band is of of effectiveness is actually quite large. You know. Mm -hmm. um, let's say now that I'm a first time founder, I want to build a startup, and I want to get investment. What would be your advice to me? Oh, yeah. This was this was actually. It sounds like we're repeating things, but your your questions are actually very sharp. Um, I come from, I, I'll quote a, I'll give you an example. Um, I also, just to garner more pipeline or effective pipeline coming through, and I really value the time that I spent or time that I observed the company prior to investment. Sometimes I offer myself for uh, these uh, incubators, like mm -hmm. the, the Y Combinator with uh, would laugh at me, but uh, there are a lot of them in the Korean uh, ecosystem. And uh, sometimes I offer myself up to, uh, to go and be on their panel or be on the judges of selections. Uh, and I found myself uh, having to say in certain point, um, are you worthy? Are you, do you think your business really um, should invite institutional money. Mm -hmm. Some guys, as I said on the part of ambition, and I'm glad that we're through that, it's the addressable market where I have a big problem with. First time guys, you know, you can make a handsome living off of, you know, I don't know, hand embroidery talent, selling that on, on uh, these, uh, you know, custom craft, kind of websites and whatever, you can still do very well. But that kind of business where it's one person labor intensive and like 
you know, it could never become an enterprise that's worthy of institutional investment. So be very, very careful. Just because you have a business idea, don't confuse that with jumping into this entire institutional venture capital and like incubator kind of a kind of a track. And uh, it's not all their fault either. In Korea, um, so if this one accelerator thing, um, I, I incubator thing, I, I went and said, uh, dear miss, uh, you have a great idea. And it's a great idea that you're trying to help out build a portal of all the, you know, handcraft masters in the, in Korea to all gather up and like, you know, do their awesome beading, you know, custom accessories and stuff like that. How much fees can you get off of a $2 beaded thing that, that they may sell a thousand a year at the yeah. best? You know, how much fees can, how much of those items do you need to sustain your platform? And they go, well, we're trying to also teach them how to, you know, do the business. Oh, so you're trying to teach them how to do their own business at the same time. Then there's already a conflict of interest because the better they get by learning from you, they want to leave your platform and stand on their own. So if you think about it, um, that's good. That's a good idea for a family funded, friends and family funded business, but it's not for institutions. And she thanked me much at the end of the debate and then reappeared the next year <laughs> with, a, with a much more suitable business plan. I, I still yeah. couldn't be, you know, really like, but I, I really loved her spirit. You know, she took the advice, which at the time sounded like I was putting the idea down. As yeah. if it was inferior. She and many people could have thought that, but she she really understood where I was coming from. Now, since this is a Korea uh, startup podcast, I'll tell you, the system is also a little bit at fault because uh, because of the fifteen year liquidity run and how venture capital has become like this this thing in finance. Um, Everything, including from the government down to like, you know, every next guy having any some some sort of involvement with startups. It's such an in, encouraging atmosphere. And uh, people don't think it's good to work for Samsung Electronics or wherever for a career if you can go out there and try and hit a home run building your own business. You know, that's, that's kind of wrong. I think I think things are biased in Korea towards a little bit too much towards encouraging entrepreneurship in in, in after you know actually after a 15 year bull run in liquidity, um, people forget that there are cycles. People forget that there are certain these these preliminary basics that you got to think about when you go out there on your own and then build a business. Um, so it's not completely there. Fault. Some accelerators are dying just to, you know, come up with a basket of ten startups. Yeah. To run a show. I'm like, this is. There's got to be something wrong with this. Mm -hmm. mm. But yeah, investment worthy for institutionals, uh, institutional investors. Uh, you have to. You have to really give it a big thought, and then a lot of it means that not the growth rate. 
but you have to get that addressable market component out of your ambition down cold. If it doesn't deserve a thousandfold kind of increase or later on like hundreds of million dollars of, uh, of revenue imaginable, then perhaps it's not suited for a formal institutional uh, investor round. Mm-hmm. Angels can get on it. Friends and family can get on it, but the normal track that everybody is familiarly um, familiar to these days of doing series after series and like you know going to IPO and all that, um, you can't you can't start with hand embroidery. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying hand embroidery business is bad. It could be a handsome living. It could be something that you like for for 50 years going forward and whatnot, but it's not institutional um, investment worthy. So that's one thing. Are you, are you, uh, do you have that scale is one thing. Um, Also one advice is that you could, you could definitely, depending on the business model, you could definitely have an awareness towards how you're going to break even earlier, the better. That just means, you know, you have to stay conscious. This example is going to come up again. But then uh, when the guy BS Kim, um, when he founded Coupon, went to NASDAQ. And it's been, I think, already a couple of years on on NASDAQ. But they're still not annually in the black. They're still in swimming in red ink. I heard, though, that their recent few quarters, they turned black finally. But annual-wise, they still didn't. After having so many rounds and billion dollars of like uh, billions of of uh, valuations, and then listing in Nasdaq, they're still not in the in the black. So it's business model um, dependent. But then that's their business model. They had to build a completely dominating infrastructure for all logistics, and then base their business on it. So it's understandable. Nobody can call them a failure just yet. You know what I mean? But in most cases, when you start out, it is a very healthy exercise and, and brings good discipline to think about managing your finances and then think about maintaining revenue. And then and then not going way beyond your means. And then it goes into the usual uncle talk, you know? That's all that I am to many startups. I'm just an uncle down the corner in a small room um and it's about maturing it's a, it's about maturing um you know try and have some internal control mechanisms in place um even if it just if it's just in your head you need to have internal controls on your mind or else uh, a firm can start acting very you know belligerent or you know consider their small successes along the way and uh, definitely blow that out of proportion and start making mistakes. Um, so it's, it's a very good practice to have like uh, checks and balances within the leadership group. When a startup is starting out with five people, then at least three people are going to be considered considering themselves as key people. Then those three people, even though they're in charge of different functions, they'll know each other well enough to to be checks and balances for each other. You know, it was a, it was a great honor when I showed one of my portfolio companies over to another close investor 
they didn't end up investing in them, but then they gave me a feedback in that the three people of the leadership group seemed very well balanced. Mm-hmm. One guy was very, very like this flag bearer of like, of like, uh, you know, proactiveness and all that. One guy was extremely conservative and he happened to be the CFO. So the guy who's out there with the flag and like being the superstar to the outside, he couldn't, he couldn't buy two people a beer without having pre-approval those things are just beautifully be- one guy was so strategy strategy focused that that guy didn't want to allow anybody um to do anything unless they you know submitted mm-hmm. a, a a a plan for it so these guys combined uh actually left a big impression to this uh this firm that i introduced and uh they're still to this day they're like they're not, they may be cussing at each other behind the back, but they're still doing really well. Mm-hmm. So these checks and balances, these kind of like uh, internal control measures, these things have to be in the back of the mind. Absolutely. So those are the things for mm-hmm. the first timers. And then, you know, as you, as days go on, months go by, you know, you start to grow and they start asking people like, like me, like, Uncle Mike, what should I do next? You know, this is another new, new turn. I've never seen this. What do I do? And then I'll be there like, and try and help out. Uh Okay. So now let's go. I think this is one of my, my favorite topics. What is like the typical evolution of a startup? I'd like to actually look at this from a subjective deployment capability. Initially, there's a stage where you need funding, you need funding. And at some point, as soon as you hit a stage where you don't, if you didn't, if you strapped on a little bit of discipline, there's a point where your revenues and the earnings or the margins from it is enough to keep the lights on for the company. If you tried then you did not need any more funding. There's that point. And that point, um, oftentimes uh, comes in after what we call, quote unquote, the flywheel growth. Um, Flywheel growth is where one of your business models or the business model that you've been pursuing actually starts working, starts you know, and it's gone beyond the minimum addressable market so that you're actually scaling. So the cash is churning. At that point, um, with that business model kicking in, then you're ready to either accelerate that or look into peripheral businesses or other businesses that you had, you know, that could run alongside it and whatnot. So I'd like to look at the earlier days of the runway and then you pass the tipping point per se and then you hit flywheel growth and then mm-hmm. from that point on you go into your adolescence in compared to like a human being's life that's when you really have to start putting on a corporate suit and then make sure that everything is working and done mm-hmm. professional ways like Let's say for Google, 
when was it that Eric Schmidt joined? That's that's flywheel. You know, when they started doing when advertising was their only business model, or the or having like eighty million users, you know, to have the confidence and enough funding. That's that's their flywheel growth uh, phase that they just graduated. Every startup uh, will be chasing that earlier on by focusing on that their main uh, business model where they feel like it's working. But you will find many startups getting distracted along the way because investors, as investors, we tend to sniff out early. If we're doing our job, we need to, we, we, we will sniff out that something's going correct in this company. And then we end up, you know, funding a series B for them. And then this founder all of a sudden starts a new business department. Mm-hmm. And then the entire horror story, Friday the 13th starts. And then they'll never see the, see their flywheel growth reach a certain critical level so that they graduate. This is something very, very important that you keep. You need to, you need to make darn sure that your main business is running and running on its own almost like automatically uh, and giving you a choice of uh, not having to worry for your sustenance as is at that point. Mm -hmm. So that's, I discern the life cycle in that way. And then along the way, it's all the same as other management literature talks about. You have your tipping points, you have your runways, you know, things like that. I also want to stress that growth comes along the lifespan. I also would like to encourage, word of encouragement to share, um, is that um, your growth usually comes in step functions. It's not a smooth 45 degree to the upside kind of a, kind of a linear growth. It's usually a step function. So there's a lot of patience involved. You know, until you see the next jump, until you see the next jump, next, uh, next, you know, benchmark deal happens, the next breakthrough happens, uh, the next landmark deal happens, you know, all these things, they come in step functions so that you, while you're doing the same thing and you can get tired of it very much. You feel like you're staying stale. You know, it's the same 200,000 users just doing it, and we're throwing special things at them, new functions at them, and then it's still 200,000 the next day, the next month, and then voila! Out of out of all your added functionalities of your your platform, something blows up, and you jump up to one million users. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you need to have a patience and it. It can be very frustrating, but I also want to say that if you have, if you do everything that's humanly possible to think that you're on the right track, don't give up after two weeks, you know, it's going to come in step functions and somebody who did not know you will start paying attention to you. There's a higher chance of that rather than the little amount of people as a startup that know you are going to all of a sudden, you know, not like you. The chances are that the former has a lot better chance than the latter of what I just mentioned. 
because you're a startup. So, you know, have some grit, have some staying power, stickiness, and then uh, keep on doing if you think that you're on the right track, uh, the same thing, and then it's going to come in step functions. And then, when I, as I said, you know, when you start looking for your uncle after the flywheel growth, uh, that's what I like to call a great transition. That's when, that's when you know the initial eight people that started a company, you know, grow up to be 120, and then from that point on, it is, I mean, the leaders cannot keep on being this eclectic leader that everybody loves. And and I've seen many mistakes made this way. I mean, this I don't speak about this very lightly. For some reason, we're a very social animal and we just have this urge or need to be liked by everyone, especially when it's a company that, that you gave birth to. You mm-hmm. tend to easily fall to popular, uh, populism. Um, on, on the flip side, I've also seen many cases where there's like a complete dictatorship, like just nobody can look at the founder straight in the eye and then nobody can disagree, that kind of thing that I've seen as well. So... So, you know, in a more normal case, you can just have to accept that you cannot be liked by everybody after that phase. And then that's when the great transition, that's one of the things that happened during the great transition that at some point you believe that the past eight years, this, this head of marketing that was your friend who ran alongside you in all professional uh, measures, um, he's actually not not the best guy for the job. You got to look for a new head of marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are very, very tough decisions to be made. And after that great transition, if you, if you make the right tough calls and tough, make the right tough decisions um, more than more than the wrong ones, then you'll find yourself transformed into something like the next Google. So this great transition entails that the leader grows. He has to just accept. And this is where, when we first started talking about my motivation to speak to you guys about this and how I urge you to get better every day, you know, you can't, you can't sit there and be what you need to be. And this is when this matters the most, the leader, the founder, the largest shareholder and founder, the guy who's just carried everybody on his back to this level through this great transition, you got to become somebody more than likely you, you're going to become somebody else. You have to, that's when you need to poach people from Google. You know, that's when you need to hire like this, this head of HR that, that, Otherwise, wouldn't look, come and work for a startup. You know, maybe now's the time that you can make a smart offer and get him on. You know, this is when the great transition happens. A lot of things. You need to be a pro. Well, you can't. You could not have been already a pro in this presumption, and usually it doesn't happen. You have to be very knowledgeable in the changes that you need to seek to guard yourself against inefficiencies and mistakes that can offer during this great transition. Then you're on your way to a 200 employee, 300 employee, uh, revenue wise, you know, 10 mil, 20 mil, hundred mil, that kind of a, of a thing. 
I would go to the extreme and say that if you are, if you fumble and if you think lightly of this great transition, it's almost a tragedy in the in in, in the making. Something that I'm thinking a lot, Ming, while you're talking, is that the, the like the life cycles of a startup of a company are so different that. How is it possible that a same person that can build a company from zero to 100, then not to 100 like million or 100,000 euros, then is able to continue with the great transition and with the other life cycles that are completely different from just building a product from zero? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. And most of the guys who, who are very, very analytic about even themselves, code logic, um, they will look to hire a professional CEO, mm-hmm. and it's not it's, it, and it is not that rare in the acquisition circle. Like mature businesses, if I like in in the all the cases that I have acquired a company abroad, we had uh, change of management and we hired professional CEOs. Wow! So. Even in a startup, that can come true. But I'm also with the idea that it, it could also be natural that the founder, having come from zero to a certain point, mm-hmm. he's the only person in the firm that had the roles and responsibility to look into everything about the company through every day up to that point. So that's probably one of the just natural justifications that that guy can still lead on mm-hmm. by learning new skills, uh, you know, skills in leadership skills and hiring skills and accounting knowledge skills in I don't know, sales, marketing, whatever, because he knows the company the most and he had rights to all the information of what's going on in his own company since day one. He's the only one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. then maybe because of that natural reason, he could be justified as being the guy that will carry the company even further forward after the great transition. But mm-hmm. after a certain point, you know, you, I mean, Eric Schmidt, he became the, the, the chairman of the board. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and he was definitely a hired CFO in the beginning. Strategic CFO, but still. Maybe to wrap up a little bit, um, what are some of the tier two and tier three factors that you would consider from a founder? Yeah, um, as I said, uh, if we hadn't talked about it good enough, uh, it's the it's the addressable market and how you analyze the market uh, and the and the person, mm-hmm. the founder, the team is most expo- important to us. Um, then, if possible. Um, if possible, if I can ever assess or hear stories of how he built out the team by attractive, attracting talent, yeah, and we come back again to this subject. If a founder can demonstrate how he's been able to just uh, you know hire these people or creatively attract talent, that's one thing that I want to see. Uh, if possible, also to assess. Uh, uh, how the founder is budget conscious or finance conscious. 
if he for for a hobby has an accountant license, uh, that definitely is a positive. You know, mm-hmm. he knows that uh, the ice cream that he bought for his client and ice cream that he bought to eat himself are two different things. He should not do the latter with comp- the company's money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So uh, financial keenness, uh, that's uh, that's definitely uh, uh, added positive. And um, little is known, and people think very lightly of it. But if you look at a company's history, no matter how small or insignificant uh, can, of a role the company uh, is playing in, in its respective field, there are companies that are able to attract a lot of business partners. Like, say, uh, you know, we have this new whatever platform and all of a sudden they're, they're selling Coca-Cola products on there and then, like, you know, going into all these like corporate sponsorship, partnerships, uh, co-marketing. This actually is a very, very good way to tell if the guy can sell. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if there's good corporate or business partners, you know, that's definitely telling you something. And, um, you know, lastly, but not the least, um, if you, if there, I don't know if anybody asked, but I always ask when I meet a company, um, what was the toughest point in the company's life so far? If you ask that, mm, because we're all, as we said, very optimistic kind of biased, optimism biased. Mm-hmm. Most people, some people may not even remember, but then when you ask carefully enough, They'll go like, oh, remember that time, uh, you know, actually, you know, two of the two, two people out of the founding team actually had a fist fight because of this unsolvable whatever difference and things like that. So what I'm trying to measure here is the fortitude, mm-hmm. fortitude, meaning the, 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 the healthiness and the strength of the firm no matter how small or large at the point where I'm meeting them for the first time, I want to always ask about the hardships and then see what kind of a hardship they have overcome to be in front of me by that day. That is something that is going to be very illustrative of the team's uh, uh, fortitude. So that's that's another tier tour. Tier if you want to keep updated on the Korea startup ecosystem, don't forget to follow us. And if you have any question or you would like to participate in one of our interviews, send us an email to koreastartuppodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.